there's joy in this house. Amen? Hey, good morning. Good morning and welcome to LCC. My name is Brett Machat and I am the worship and young adults pastor here at Life Community Church. And on behalf of the whole worship team, we're super excited to have you join us this morning. Uh, we've got an exciting service planned for you guys, but before we get on with that, I want to tell you about a couple of things that are happening around here. First of all, our 25-year anniversary is coming up in September, September 9th, 10th, and 11th. If you haven't marked those dates on your calendar yet, do that today when you get home. It's going to be an amazing celebration. We're talking like it's going to be a long Sunday service. That's all I'm going to say. But it's going to be filled with a lot of really cool stuff. Um, also, we're going to have another mini work day. Actually, I think this is just a regular work day on August 20th from 10 a.m. to noon. We did this a couple weekends ago, and it was awesome. We had a pretty good turnout. Uh, we were able to do a lot of stuff outside and inside. So mark that date on your calendar as well, August 20th. I believe that's a Saturday morning. You can come from 10 to noon. You could come from 10 to 11, 11 to noon. Just come here. Help us out a little bit. It's amazing what we can accomplish with, like, 20, 30 people. Uh, also, today is the first Sunday in August. Can, is anybody just, like, blown away that it's already August 7th? Like, I, yeah, I saw, I see, I see a couple of hands. I can't believe it. I'm still over here mourning the loss of June. Uh, I know, I'm a little bit late on that. Uh, but it is the first Sunday of August, which means we are having our first Sunday lunch. You probably saw some tables out in the lobby. We're having, what are we having today? Hot dogs. Hot dogs. Woo! I am so looking forward to, I have so many hot dog puns that I'm not going to make right now. I'll, I'll save you guys. Um, I will, I'll catch up on them later. I, could, I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I tried, I really tried to not say it and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help myself. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, we are a bilingual church, that's why our announcements, that's why our lyrics are in English and Spanish. So I want to encourage you, we're actually going to be singing a little bit in English and a little bit in Spanish today. I want to encourage you, embrace the other language that you, maybe you don't fluently speak. It's really cool and it's really fun and exciting. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, but before we move on to some more singing and some more worship, turn to someone next to you and tell them your favorite uh, hot dog topping, okay? And if you have any puns, maybe, like, and then also introduce yourself and tell them that you're really excited to meet them and all that stuff. But your favorite hot dog topping. Father God, I just pray that those words would be true of us today, this week. God, would you lead us to your feet God, bring us humbly before you to empty ourselves of who we are, of our accomplishments, of our actions, and to rely completely on your grace, God. I pray that that would be true of us every day, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves, that we would hear the gospel each morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. You can have a seat except for the kids. The kids can go to get some. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Hello, everybody. So, uh, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Dan Nellis, and uh, hey. And yeah. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, I'm Dan Nellis. I'm a part of the teaching team here at Life Community Church. 
And uh, for the past, um, I don't know, a couple of months, we've been doing a series called Jesus Ant. And uh, this series sprung out of an observation um, that, um, that our tendency in life is to kind of look at Jesus sort of as a sort of the plus one to the party of our lives, right? So he's just, he's kind of an added guest. He's kind of an afterthought, if he's thought of it all. And we kind of don't believe that here at Life Community Church. We, we believe very strongly that, that our lives, and in fact, all of creation, um, begin and end with Jesus Christ. And so we're using this summer season to um, take an extended look at the life and teaching of Jesus Christ uh, in, in the Gospels and examine how um, a fuller and richer life can be found um, when he becomes our starting point. And so today we're going to look at see what Jesus had to say about the concept of greatness. Okay, so Jesus and greatness, which um, I don't know about you, but I find that to be an incredibly relevant topic uh, in today's me first world. So, uh, so early this spring, uh, I was having lunch, uh, I think it was at La Rosa's, with uh, my good friend uh, uh, Tom Burns. Uh, we were talking about the things we usually talk about. We were catching up on work and our families and our baseball teams. Um, and during the course of our conversation, I was lamenting, I was complaining very loudly about how, once again, I was not going to be able to watch my Detroit Tigers, my beloved but hapless Detroit Tigers, um, muddle near the bottom again this season. And he reminded me about Major League Baseball's online offering, MLB TV. It's a streaming service. And, uh, you know, I... I had it before, I had it for a couple of years, and then I let it go because I thought it was sort of an extravagance. Um, so then I, after that lunch, I went and looked again, and, um, and after reallocating some of the kids' college funds, I signed up <laughs> for, this, uh, for this season. And uh, fast forward a month or so into April when uh, I was texting with Tom and telling him how much I was enjoying having it again, having MLB uh, TV, and, and he wrote back and sent me this, this text. And, uh, I said, I'm not going to lie, I'm loving having this, and he sent me this list, which made me laugh out loud, and you can see it there. It's a, it's a top 10 list of mankind's greatest inventions, as told by Tom Burns. You can see it includes MLB.tv, but also things like refrigeration, jet propulsion, and the KitchenAid mixer, right? Which, I mean, I feel like that's a fairly comprehensive, I can't really think of anything else that would, that would make the list, you know, 11, I don't, I don't know. But it made me laugh out loud because I love Tom's sense of humor, but also because it reminded me about how much I love, like, lists and ranking things. Um, and and I, it made me think, like, so, so does everybody else. Everybody loves to rank things. We love, we love ranking our favorite ice cream, right? We love ranking what's the greatest movie of all time or who's, what's, the greatest, what's the greatest city in the world, right? Who's the greatest athlete ever to live? Um, where's the best place to go get your health care, right? Um, what's the best school to go to? Where can, where's the best place to go get your education? We love ranking things and making lists and those kinds of things. And, and you know, we might, we might, some of us, the more cynical of us, might take a skeptical view on rankings and lists that we don't think that they really make much of a difference, but you'd better believe that marketers and consumer researchers take this kind of thing very seriously, right? And if you don't believe that your biases and your perceptions and your behaviors are influenced by things like rankings, then just look back at the last time you made a decision based on a Google search that you did. Right? So in a world of top 10 lists, I think it's safe to say that it stinks to be number 11. Right? Or, as famous race car driver uh, Ricky Bobby said, if you're not first, you're last. Right? 
So our love of comparing things, which is identifying who or what is better than someone or something else, it's not a modern convention. It's not something new. It goes all the way back to the beginning of human history. See Cain and Abel, right? But it's something that even Jesus had to deal with as he was interacting with his disciples. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of uh, different but similar interactions Jesus had with his disciples when confronted with the topic of greatness. So if you could, uh, if you have your Bibles, um, book or online, uh, open to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in Luke. We're going to end in Matthew. Uh, chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 46 to 50. And these stories, these interactions can also be found in um, Matthew and, and Mark. So like this passage out of Luke 9, 46 to 50 is found in Matthew 18 and also in Mark chapter 9. But before we jump into this passage, we're going to take a look at what precedes it because I think context matters. Now, I'm not going to read these verses. I'm just going to have them up here so you can see them, and I'm going to just talk about what happens in them, and then we'll, we'll dive into our main passages. But, but what, we, what happens right before where we're going to land, Jesus had just healed a boy who had been terrorized by a demon. And all the people who saw this were astonished at God's majesty, right? So everyone's marveling at what Jesus did at this point, right? How great is this guy, right? How great is God using this guy? And so Jesus then naturally decides to take this time to pull his disciples aside and remind him that he's going to be dying soon. He's going to die soon. This is the second time Jesus did this actually in the book, in this same chapter. The first time that Jesus talked about his impending death was right after um, Peter proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, as, as, the come, as the promised one, as the chosen one, which Tom just covered last week. So we're going to come back to crucifixion in a moment here. But his disciples didn't understand. They didn't understand what he was saying, and they didn't get what he was talking about, and they were afraid to ask him, right? They didn't want to, they didn't want to be the one that raised their hand and said, I don't get it. Who wants to look stupid in front of the teacher, right? So in light of this recent exchange, Jesus doing miracles and then talking about his crucifixion, this next interchange might seem a little odd. So we're going to pick things up in Luke 9, 46. So immediately after all this happens, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, isn't that the natural thing that you would do after hearing that your rabbi teacher is about to die? You have an argument over who is the greatest. Now, the word for argument here, it's, it's easy to kind of make it into some kind of like heated exchange or some kind of an emotional type thing that's going on. But the word here, it's, the Greek word is um, dialogismas, uh, which is dialogue, right? They're having... A conversation, but it goes into like they were thinking, they were reasoning among themselves, they were deliberating. The word can also mean they were calculating. And I like that word. I like the word calculating here. So they were, they were kind of calculating amongst themselves which one of them was the greatest. They were trying to do the math of their lives to see who got a higher number. It'd be, it'd be so interesting to be in the room there, right? Like Peter saying, you know, like, well, I talk the most, right? And I'm in I'm in like the inner circle with James and John, so like I've got, a, I've, got, I've got a few more points than you guys, right? And poor Thomas, like he doesn't know what's coming for him, right? That he's, he's going to have a big negative, right, on his, his ranking list. Andrew was the first one called, so, you know, he's, that's got to that's count for something, right? And Judas Iscariot handles the money, you know, so that's gotta, he's got to get some points there, right? So they're, they're doing this math to see who's the greatest. And Jesus steps in, but Jesus... Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him 
by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, sorry, for he who is the least among you all is he who is great. First of all, I just get blown away by the first part of this. Jesus, he knew what was going on in their hearts. Like that should just stop us all in our tracks, right? We're having these conversations, and Jesus, he gets right to it. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. He knew what they were thinking. They had just witnessed Jesus feed more than 5,000 people. They had heard Jesus call him. They had heard, heard Peter call Jesus the Messiah. They had seen or heard accounts of him uh, and all of his glory at the transfiguration, and they had just witnessed him he heal a demon-possessed boy. What a rush, right? What a rush to be in such close proximity to someone of such immense power, right? I mean, how could it not sort of go to your head? I think there's sort of a modern telling of that story going on right now. And believing that this person that, that you've hitched your wagon to is going to usher in a new kingdom, you naturally want to make sure that you are positioned properly so that all the benefits of that kingdom would come your way. So it was, it was these thoughts, these thoughts of this reasoning, this, this positioning, this calculating that Jesus would respond to. So how does Jesus respond? He, he does what comes natural to him. He takes a child, and he points them to a child. This isn't the first time that Jesus uses a child as an example, which makes sense because they're generally very cute. Um, you can kind of pick them up and move them around pretty easily. And in this culture, they were held in very low esteem. Like, they were, they were sort of on the lowest rung. So they were overlooked, they were ignored, they were insignificant. So when Jesus points them to a child and says that welcoming a child is the same thing as welcoming him, to them that would be something very profound. Jesus is telling them that what's important to him is it's not how much you care about yourself or how high your position is, it's how much you value and esteem others, even those that the world tends to overlook. He's telling them, and I think he's telling us, that instead of seeking status for themselves, his followers, we should be welcoming to and care about the needs of others, even those of low status. Because doing this is akin to welcoming and caring for Jesus and welcoming and caring for the one who sent him. And then he drove the point home at the, at the very end of this passage. He says that he who is least among you is the one who is great. The least among them is the greatest. Which gets us to our, our first main point here when it comes to greatness. The first, you want to be great? The first thing you want to do, the path to greatness, it begins and ends with humility. Now, humility is a concept which trips me up a lot. And it's honestly, it's its own sermon. It's its own story here that we could go into. But, you know, um, the idea that, that we're supposed to be humble, sometimes it, you can kind of get twisted around on it. Um, in a recent column in The Atlantic, uh, David Brooks, he uh, wrote an article. He satirized uh, modern society's fondness for false humility display or humble bragging, um, especially within social media. Uh, he called humility the new pride. So, like, as an example, it's like when a celebrity tweets about how hard it is to be like everybody else at the grocery store when the paparazzi are following them around all the time, right? Right? So, humility is, is often defined, we kind of tend to think of humility as, like, thinking 
like less of yourself, right? Like lowering yourself. Like there's this act of the will that happens within you where you kind of push yourself down. And I, I think that, you know, James 4.10 says that we're supposed to humble ourselves. We're supposed to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. So there is an act of, of us like knowing our place, right? I've, also, I've often like enjoyed this definition because it fits right in with my incredible insecurity, self-consciousness, right? And then I realized that when even I think about myself that way, it sort of betrays the, the principle of humility, I feel like. That just by even thinking lower of myself, I'm thinking about myself, you know? And then I'm like, oh, am I humble? Oh, I'm not humble. I'm thinking, I shouldn't be thinking about myself. That's, you, humble people don't think about themselves, but then you've got to lower yourself. And, and I, I, like I said, I just tend to get tripped up on it. So, but I, I think there is a place for like, you know, we, we, got, we know where we are. We know where we stand, right? But humility can't just be all about thinking that I'm not all that. I think C.S. Lewis talks about it in Mere Christianity when he says that a, a humble person won't be thinking about humility. A, hum, a humble person won't be thinking about himself at all. And Brendan Manning in Ruthless Trust says, he follows up on this and expands on the ideas by saying that humility is manifested in an indifference to our intellectual, emotional, and physical well-being, and a carefree disregard of the image that we present. I feel like it's a little bit of both and, right? It's thinking about your, less about yourself, but it's also just thinking about yourself less, right? Anyways, however you define humility, the machinations and maneuverings of the disciples sort of flew in the face of what Jesus was all about. He was not about self-positioning, right? Self-promotion. So we we're going to pick up this conversation now in Luke 9. And where, where John then comes and answers appropriately, he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. That seems like a very natural response to what Jesus just said, right? About lowering yourself. You know, at this point, you would think that the disciples would be a little bit more careful about how they engage with Jesus around this kind of stuff, wouldn't you? Like, that they would just be a little more thoughtful. But if they did, we would have a lot less gospels to work with. So John, John, who notoriously described himself in his own gospel as the one, as the disciple that Jesus loved, he reported to Jesus that they recently stopped a man who had the gall, the gall to drive out demons in Jesus' name because he doesn't follow with us. He's not one of us, right? So if, if comparing ourselves against others, that's what we just learned about. The disciples were sort of comparing themselves. If that's one side of the coin called achieving greatness, then maybe the fostering of competition or rivalry is the other side of that coin. Because who doesn't love a good rivalry, right? We love it. We love rivalry. We love it in our politics. We love it in our technology. We love it in our athletics. We love it in our condiments, right? So if you know me, you know, if you know me at all, you know that my daughter, Audra, works for the Columbus Clippers on the promotional team. And one of the cool things about her job is she gets to dress up like a hot dog and run around, you know, and do the hot dog race. And, and you want to see people, like, bloodthirsty? You, you start seeing people that are rooting for, you know, ketchup, mustard, and relish, right? So, you know, can we just talk a little bit about ketchup? Because... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come out and say it. Like we're a mustard family. Okay guys. So 
And I'm a little I'm a little put off by the idea that even when we put the slide up here promoting this hot dog day, that we had a hot dog that had ketchup. And I'm not alone. The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, it exists. Be careful, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but the National Hot Dog, there she is. That's my girl. The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, their guidelines say that nobody over the 18 should be putting ketchup on a hot dog. Fight me, All right? All right, so we love, we love rivalries, right? So even that, like, we just get our, right? We're like, oh, ketchup, you know? But we also love rivalries in the expression of our faith, right? Entire groups of Jesus followers are pitted against each other based on really important things, right? Like denominational affiliation, style of worship, size of congregation, personality of the leadership, activities and amenities offered, and positions that they take on hot-button contemporary issues like sexuality and identity and race and politics and where we came from and where we're all going and how does it all end, right? This is, this is what John was kind of, he, he's not with us, so we, you know, he's not, he's not allowed to do what he's doing. And Jesus responds to John and says, but Jesus said to him, very simply, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Like, Jesus didn't give, like, a 10-point sermon on, like, what it takes to kind of be in fellowship with one another, right? The issue here wasn't one of orthodoxy. It wasn't about, their, about doctrine. We don't know anything about the doctrine of this exorcist, right? All we know is that he believed in Jesus, and he was doing things in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, don't stop him. The issue was one of fellowship. Since, since he wasn't one of the 12, he wasn't one of the disciples, then he was on the outside. He was considered a rival, a competitor. And he wasn't worthy of inclusion to, and to do things in Jesus' name. And what I love about Jesus is he, he just cuts right to it. He cuts right through the superficiality of, of John and exposed the error in his thinking and, and said simply that the criteria for acceptance on Team Jesus is, is he for me or not? If he's for you, he's for me, right? And that's it. Yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about what kind of Bible he reads, you know? This us to our second point of greatness. Other followers of Jesus aren't the competition, okay? They're not. It's fun to poke at other churches, right? They do it to us, we do it to them, styles, you know, size. They may look and sound and do things different than you and me, but, but we're not better than them, and they're not better than us. So we need to knock off the petty rivalries. We need to not be afraid to rub elbows with those who are doing kingdom work. All right, so we're going to take one more look, one more passage that, where Jesus was interacting with his disciples. All right. So, so this is found in Matthew chapter 20. So turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look through some uh, passage here. And it's some similarities to the last interaction that Jesus had, but it's, it's got enough that's different. I think it's worth talking about. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 20, Matthew, um, verse 20 and 21. So the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked for something. 
And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. Right? So context, again, matters here because this request is made of Jesus immediately again after he predicts his own betrayal, punishment, and eventual crucifixion and resurrection just in the preceding three verses, right? These guys, have, these guys have terrible timing with these kinds of things, right? So Matthew, in his passage, identifies this request as coming from the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John. Um, the parallel passages in Mark and Luke don't include the mom. Just, just, just the author's choice, right? But I like Matthew. I like Matthew's inclusion because I think it makes the passage a little bit more fascinating and I think a little bit more relatable because who among us isn't the product of or hasn't been the uncomfortable observer of parental overreach, right? Right? So, so this request to sit at Jesus' right or left hand, it might not seem like it makes a lot of sense, you know, like what does that mean? But if you just take a quick dive in Matthew 19, 28, just the previous chapter, we're not going to put it up, but Jesus told his disciples, truly I say to you that in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the tri the, that, that's where this comes from, right? So they've already been given a vision, Jesus on a throne, 12 thrones with Jesus for the 12 disciples, right? So they've already been given this vision um, of them being sort of having a seat at the table. Or to use another Hamilton reference, they were going to be in the room where it happens, no, okay. But this wasn't good enough. This wasn't good enough just to be told that it was going to happen. Like, they wanted to know, they were impatient to know, like, now. Like, what was their position going to be in the coming kingdom? So, because the closer you were to Jesus, again, is being closer to power and status. So, how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. That's what he says. You have no idea what you're asking for. Your question is coming from a position of ignorance. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So Jesus talks about cups at this point. So in the Old Testament, cups could mean lots of different things. They could mean, they could be a sign of blessing. My cup overflows, right? Um, they could also be signs and symbols of judgment or retribution. Um, they could also be seen as a metaphor for suffering. And the disciples hear this question and they say, yeah, we're able. We can, we can drink this cup. So perhaps they were thinking that Jesus was referring to the former, right, to the blessing cup. Oh, yeah, we can drink that cup, right? Or they may have thought that he was talking about, you know, some suffering, some trials, and they thought that they were up for the challenges that were to come. And Jesus confirms and says to them in verse 23, you will drink my cup, right? So unless there's any question about which cup Jesus is referring to, he answers it a little bit later in Matthew 26, 39, when he says he fell down on his face in the garden and he said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Jesus' cup his, was his burden. It was the suffering that he was to endure, right? And Jesus affirms to his own disciples that they are going to drink from that cup. They're going to endure suffering because of their association with Jesus. Right? But what I find very interesting here is that Jesus never actually answers like the question about who's going to sit where. 
He says, you're, you're going to drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Just notice here, Jesus doesn't say that there's no rank. He doesn't say that there's not going to be someone sitting on his left and right hand, right? There, there are, right? There's got left and right hands. There's going, to be, there's going to be a positioning that's going to happen. He doesn't say it's not. He just says, it's not for me to decide, right? He punts to upper management, right? Which I think we can all ima imagine their frustration and probably relate to their frustration at that answer, right? But what happens next is predictable. So when the other 10 heard it, they were indignant at the, other, at the two brothers, right? Can you just imagine what they were thinking? right? They hear this conversation go on. They probably were like kind of glad that Jesus didn't like tell them that they were going to be on the left and right. But they were probably thinking like the nerve of these guys, right? And to bring your mother, right? Like have you no shame, right? Or they're probably thinking, why didn't we think of that? Right? What, why didn't we think of that? So again, Jesus, I mean, Jesus probably is like, oh. guys, he called them together and said, and he wants to Teach them a lesson, another lesson, right? These guys are so thick. He says, he huddles them together, and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's talking about the modern day, in their time, the modern day exercising of authority and power. And at that time, it would have been like the Romans, right? The Roman authoritarian rule, right? So Jesus starts out by saying that the, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, Right? Now, a lot of times, we, we kind of like take and say, oh, they lorded it over them. Like they're, it's, he's talking about the abuse of power there, right? They lorded it over them. That, that's, I think, a way that I, I have typically translated that or looked at that. But the word that's used here for lorded it over, it's, it's actually never really used that way. It's never used to talk about abuse of power. Um, at its face value, it just means to exercise lordship over. So you could read it as, you know that lords behave as people in positions of lordship behave as lords, right? Lords behaving lordly, right? And then he follows it up just in case they don't get it. He says, and that the great ones, they exercise authority. It's just a parallel. They exercise authority over them. So he's just talking about like how things are structured, right? There's this top-down structure of things. Jesus isn't criticizing it. He's just saying, you know that this structure exists, right? It's top-down, right? There's an authority. And then he wants to contrast it though with his own followers. In verse 26, he says, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, This is not how it should be for my followers. Right? If you want to be great, be a servant. Jesus, Jesus like, just modeled this throughout his whole life, right? Just being a servant. And then to push the envelope a little further, he said, you need to be a slave. He uses the word doulos there for slave, which is sort of an interesting word for slave. It's, it's, the, it's a voluntary slave. It means bondservant. It's like someone who was free, but then they willingly made themselves a slave, right? They choose that life for themselves. They bind themselves to another person, right? So if you really want to be great, Jesus says, follow my example. But be careful what you ask for, right? This is not the life 
that you think it is. It's a life of service. It's a life of submission, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He fed, he healed, he washed feet, he carried our burdens, he protected, he forgave, he encouraged, he taught, he blessed, he lost. He lost. He didn't come to promote himself, but he sacrificed himself. He emptied himself. He gave all that he has. He flipped, right? He flipped the paradigm. No one captures what's at stake better than Paul. I'm not going to put it up here. I'm just going to read it. It's um, Philippians 2. I'm going to start in verse 3. And I'm just going to slow down here. Just, Just take a moment and... I want you just to, should have led with this, really. I should, just, I should have just read this and then just walked away, because this, this, is, this is greatness. Paul writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In these, uh, in these two passages, you know, Jesus is just, he's just talking with his guys, right? They have, a, they have a view of the world, right? They have a view of themselves and how the world works and their place in it. And that translates into their view of Jesus' coming kingdom. And Jesus says, that's, that's not how things work in my kingdom, right? In this world, you know, if you want to be great, you have to position yourself. You have to compete. There's jealousy, there's selfishness, there's this survival instinct that kicks in, right? But Jesus says, no, it's the path, not surprising, the path it, it involves having a real perspective on yourself. Humility. There's there's a partnership. There's no there's no jealousy. We're generous with each other. We're generous with our praise. We're generous with our time. We're not self-seeking. We're others seeking, others serving. It's not about our survival. It's about sacrifice. It's about submission to something beyond yourself. It's not about being ending-oriented. It's about being moment-oriented. I want to talk about that for a second because it kind of dawned on me, you know, um, the disciples in this, you know, in this passage, the mom came up and said, you know, can, can they sit on your left hand and your right hand in the coming kingdom? So their interest in position was focused in large part around their anticipation of a coming kingdom. Like where would they be when the dust settled, right? They, they were impatient to know. They wanted to know now where they, were, where they were going to be down the road, right? And at face value, this seems like a very, like, normal thing for us. Like, we all, we want to, like, have a path, a clear path for where things are at. And we want to, like, work our way towards that path. And we're impatient to achieve 
that end target, right? But there's, there's a risk that, only, that comes with if we just keep our eyes on, like, some future prize. Um, I have a sister-in-law, and she recently took on a new leadership role at a fairly prominent university east of here. Um, that she is an accomplished person, it's not in question. But what impresses me about her the most, about her ascent, her rise in the ranks of higher education, it's not her rise, it's her perspective on the journey to get there. So she was recently interviewed about her new gig and was asked about what advice, what advice would she give to others who were in a role similar to hers before her promotion, who were thinking about, quote, navigating their careers in order to create opportunities to move into university-wide leadership positions, right? So what would, you, what would you tell people that were you and are now what you're doing? How, how can they get there? Her response was fascinating because it's, it's kind of like Jesus a little bit in that she didn't like answer the question right away. She like dealt with the premise of the question, the underlying assumption. She said, your question implies a telic orientation that I don't hold to. Although I recognize this characteristic in others, I had to look it up, I'll tell you in a sec, okay? <laughs> My standard response always features advice to do your very best in the role that you're in and to stretch limits where you can go above and beyond to contribute value. She goes on to quote a colleague, a colleague who compared administrative roles in higher education to effective teaching practices. Like good instructors, a good administrator is engaged in the present, yet stays out of the way of those doing the work. And she says, I appreciate this viewpoint since it's not about a person taking credit. It's about creating conditions for success and progress towards shared goals. And she goes on. It's like, wow. Like, I wasn't expecting, I wouldn't expect that. I would expect someone just to say, well, here's your five-point plan. This is what it takes to go from here to here to here, and then you reach your end goal. She doesn't do that. She talked about a telic orientation in career planning and advancement. Telic means that when it's, something is telic when it's done to a definite end. When someone approaches a task with a telic mindset, they are ending-oriented. The point of doing something is to finish it, all right, to reach the end. And often, people that have this orientation or motivation, they view others simply as a means to achieving that end. The opposite of telic is paratelic or intrinsic. I know we're going to just bear with me here. It means that you're more moment-oriented. When someone approaches a task with a paratelic mindset, the process of doing the task is its own reward. This perspective views others not as obstacles to overcome, but as partners to join you along the way. Two very different ways of viewing the world, two very different ways of viewing life and advancement, and right? Now, that doesn't mean that achieving goals isn't important. Goals are good. But if all you're about, if all you're thinking about is that next rung on the ladder, if all you're thinking about is becoming better at something, moving up the ranks, improving your position, if all you're thinking about is getting to heaven and what it takes to get there and who you have to climb over, then you miss out on those everyday moments to experience that, that rich Jesus-filled life that comes to those who patiently wait for his arrival. I don't know, that just struck me. I think that gets missed sometimes. So I have some parting thoughts, just some questions. These can be used around the dinner table uh, for, for group life. 
when you're in your car. Just some things to think about. So when, when is the last time that you were genuinely happy for the success of someone else, especially when it was at your own expense? How often do you compare yourself to others? What are the criteria that you use, right? So when is serving, when is meeting the needs of someone else actually cost you something? I'm not beating you up, guys. Like, this is, like, it's painful to, like, write this stuff out, too, because it's just, like, daggers, right? Just a couple more. All right, who do you welcome into your inner circle? Right? Who's in? Who's in with you and who's not? If you guys only knew, like the stuff that goes on in a person's mind when they're like thinking about, oh man, like what a wretch, you know, <laughs> like how I, how I look at people and just slot them, judge them, compare them. All right, last one. What would it look like for you and me to be more moment-oriented in your day-to-day life? This one, this one I think is very fascinating because, you know, we just live in a fast-paced world, right? And I've um, been reading this book um, on like kind of everyday liturgy, um, and there was a there was this chapter about patience, and just the idea of like slowing down, being more moment oriented when you're stuck in traffic, right? When you're jockeying for position to get in line at the grocery store, <laughs> when you're checking the boxes on your to do list, or when you're mapping out your career, or honestly, when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing right now in this very moment. What does it look like to be more in the moment, not be thinking about what's next? Let's talk about that this week. Let's pray about that this week. Let's pray right now. Hey, God, you you just cut right to the heart of things and um, expose all of the stuff that goes on in our hearts and our minds, and you tell us to pray like you. You tell us to pray that your will would be done. You tell us to pray that your kingdom would come. So we want it to come. We want your kingdom to come. We want it to come quickly, God. But in the now, in the moment, help us not to be so uh, caught up in the pursuit of what's next in our life, God. That we would have a right view of ourselves, that we would see ourselves appropriately, God, with you and with others that we could just not have the burden um, of, of worrying and anxiety that comes with comparison, that we would just give that burden to you, God, that we would follow the example of your son who emptied himself. He gave all, gave it all. Help us to be more like your son, God. Thank you that we get to gather around your word. God, I pray that you would use it to teach us to be more like you. We give you thanks. We pray through your son. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be together this morning. Would you, through your word, through conversations that we have with each other, through the way we love one another, would you transform our hearts this week? Would you, would you remind us of, um, of what matters most? in your name we pray. Oh, Father, before that, for the food. Ah, Thank you for the food that we're about to eat. Would you bless it to our bodies?
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I've got a, I've got a perfect idea for a live in the moment kind of thing. It's called, let's go out to the lobby and sit down and eat lunch together, all right? I don't think there's anything more ordinary or in the moment than just sharing a meal together. And for all my introverts, if you, like me, like if you sit down out there and you're like, oh, I gotta sit with people I don't know and I'm gonna have to say, talk about something. Here's, here's your starter question. What's better, mustard, ketchup, or relish, all right? The grill is on. Go get some lunch.